Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that you've created a world which we are able to interact with. We can see that world and we can touch that world and we can hear the sounds around us. And Lord, we know that the visible world tells us something about the invisible world. And Lord, we know that the Bible tells us something about the invisible world of faith. Lord, we know that without faith, it's impossible to please you. And so for whatever reason, Lord, you want us to cultivate faith. So that we can trust you. And so that we can believe you. And so that we can walk in the promises that you've provided for us. And so, Lord, for that person who's come here tonight and their faith is being tested or their faith is weak. Lord, I pray that you would help them pass the test. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our faith so that we can love you. In Jesus name. Amen. First Samuel, chapter 14, beginning in verse one, it says, now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistines garrison that is on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Boses. And the name of the other, Sinah, the front of one faced northward opposite Michmash and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him. Do all that is in your heart. Go then. Here I am with you according to your heart. Then Jonathan said, Very well, let us cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, Wait until we come down to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, Come up to us then we will go up for the Lord has delivered them into our hand and this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes in which they have hidden. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you something. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. And they fell 
before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away, and they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who's gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer weren't there. And Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark. It might be translated um, the ephod. Bring the ark or the ephod of God here. For at that time, the ark or the ephod of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled and they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor. And there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle shifted to Bet Avim. You'll remember, as we've studied the book of 1 Samuel, the part of the theme, the people have requested a king. And Saul has been selected as king and then rejected as king in chapter 13. Three chapters record three great sins that Saul commits. The sin of impatience in chapter 13, the sin of pride in chapter 14, the sin of disobedience in chapter 15. And all of that's going to become important to you because just like the Lord wants to cultivate a life of faith inside of your heart, they're enemies of faith. And the enemies of faith include impatience, pride. And disobedience. I know that there are times in your life and in my life where we cry out to God and we just say things like, Lord, I really want to trust you. I want to have confidence in you. I need your help so that you can help me trust you. And the moment you pray that prayer, you're going to be tempted to experience impatience. You're going to be tempted with self-sufficiency, and you're going to be tempted to disobey God. In this particular chapter, it can be divided into two broad categories or two big ideas. The first big idea that we just read in verses 1 through 23 is that faith in God brings victory. 
And that's exactly what what, uh, what, uh, Jonathan is demonstrating for us. That faith in God brings victory. And the second part of this chapter can broadly be broken down into the category that foolish words bring trouble. And that's what we're going to look at the next time we get together. But what does that mean? What does it mean to have faith in God? The chapter is going to contrast, if you will, the faith of Saul and the faith of Jonathan. The Bible teaches us that faith in God means trust in God and confidence in God. Faith in God means that we hear what God says, we hear the promises that he makes, and then we're willing to listen, understand, and respond to it. Just like everyone who is listening to my voice, I'm going to assume that there are no angelic beings here. As a human being, you're required to have a daily intake of food. It wasn't too long ago that people used to say that you are what you eat. I know that's a terrifying thought to some of you. But it is true that what you eat is assimilated into your body and it begins to form the constituent components that make up you. The muscle and the nerves and the flesh, the hair, the eyes. But just like you are what you eat physically, you are also what you eat Spiritually, your spirit feeds. And the thing that your spirit feeds on is faith and hope and love. And so when you open up your Bible and you begin to read your Bible and you begin to understand and embrace these spiritual circumstances, all of a sudden something grows. It wells up inside of you. There are those who say that faith is a force and your words are the container of the force. But that's not true. Faith isn't something that you work up in order to please God, but rather it's trust in the nature of God, in the promises of God, in the plan of God. So since faith is confidence in the person of God then a lack of faith or unbelief is a wavering faith. It's a weak faith. So what we're going to see with Saul is weak and wavering. With Jonathan, strong and fearless. One is insensitive to the things of God and the other is insensitive. One is, and the other is sensitive to the will and the working of God. One is misguided and carnal and the other wants God's blessing and God's favor. And when we look at Saul and we carefully monitor his departure from God, we've we've already seen some of the steps that he's taken. Remember, in chapter 13, Saul intruded into the office of the priesthood. That means that he thought that he could exercise mediation between God and himself. In chapter 14, Saul is going to order the death of his own son. In chapter 15, Saul is going to spare Amalek, which is God's enemy, and it becomes a type and a picture of sin. In, in, in uh, chapter 
16 and 18 and 19, Saul is going to be afflicted by a demonic spirit. Saul is going to once again attempt to kill his own son. Saul is going to slaughter 85 priests of God in the city of Nob. And Saul is going to consult a witch at Endor in order to try and receive supernatural information from a source other than God. And all of that is going to spare, spell disaster. I read an article in Reader's Digest which spoke of a 67-year-old man named Bill who managed to donate 100 pints of blood over the years. And no doubt there were people who owed their health and perhaps their life to this man's kindness. And in the article, he was asked, how do you think your good deeds are going to be viewed in heaven? Here's what Bill thinks, quote, When the final whistle blows and St. Peter asks, what did you do? Well, I'll just say I gave a hundred pints of blood. He says with a laugh, that ought to get me in. I'm hoping that he was joking. Because if he's serious, if he thinks his good deeds will get him into heaven, even if he's trusting a hundred pints of donated blood, he's trusting the wrong blood. Because his good deeds won't get him into heaven. And so we look at the problem. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistines garrison that is on the other side. But he didn't tell his dad. Didn't tell his father. Now you'll remember where we're at in the text. They've chosen Saul to be king. And one of the reasons why they've chosen Saul to be king is so that he can act as a deliverer. As a savior, if you will. Here's the underlying premise. The children of Israel are in bondage. And they're in bondage to the Philistines. The immediate application, of course, is to us. In the New Testament, the Bible says it is for Christ's sake that you have been set free. You see, prior to our accepting Jesus, we're in bondage to sin. And even for some of us, after we accept Jesus, there are these little private bondages that we entertain and embrace. The bondage might be in the form of a physical, mental, emotional circumstance where you're constantly under the pressure, under the strain, under the struggle of forces that are trying to manipulate you into doing something other than obeying God, other than trusting God, other than walking with God. And since the Philistines had kept the children of Israel in bondage, and since God had established Saul to deliver them from the bondage, there was a threat And that threat was reinforced and they set up a a garrison at the pass in Michmash. And remember, we saw that last time when we were together in chapter 13 in verse 23. And it says, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. And I don't know if we have that that um, map up, but but let me just help you with something. The Philistines controlled one area. The Jewish people, the children of Israel, controlled another area. And where those two areas met, the smallest little pass between where those two areas met 
the Philistines set up a garrison so that they could control the circumstances. And that's exactly what Satan does. He finds the point of pressure. He finds the point of vulnerability. Satan sets up camp at that point of vulnerability in your life. And the vulnerability can take several different forms. Mental, emotional, physical. It can be an addiction. It can be any number of different problems. Jonathan saw the posting of the Philistine guard as an opportunity to attack and see the Lord work. And you see, that becomes the first step in a life filled with faith. Because each and every one of us have a tendency to look at our problem in one of two ways. As an insurmountable problem that we can't overcome. Or as an opportunity to trust the Lord. To rely on the Lord. To believe in the Lord. Most of us don't lose our job and go, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, that I've lost my job. Because now this is going to be the perfect opportunity for me to trust you. Most of us don't rejoice when we experience a failed relationship and we go, oh, wow, this is the perfect opportunity that I have to trust the Lord. But each and every one of us are going to be faced with physical and financial circumstances. Each and every one of us are going to be tested in a number of different circumstances in a number of different places. Someone once wisely said, don't let a good opportunity go to waste. And now all of a sudden we understand a little bit better what it says in the New Testament when it says count it all joy when you fall into various afflictions. What? What, what are you saying? The New Testament makes it abundantly clear that we have this amazing and incredible opportunity to love him and to trust him. Now think about it. This is what Jonathan is going to do. Jonathan has heard Samuel speak. Jonathan has watched God work in the life of the children of Israel. And Jonathan has come to that place where the enemy is confronting the children of Israel. And he sees it as an opportunity to exercise faith, to engage the enemy and overcome the enemy. But that's not true of his father. In verse 2, it says, And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. And all of a sudden, we see what we've already seen. Remember, Samuel has stripped the kingdom from Saul because of his intrusion into the office of the priesthood. God is disqualifying him as leader of the children of Israel, but he still continues to act as the leader. God had allowed Saul to be appointed the king in part to provide redemption, what that means, deliverance from the oppression of Israel's enemies. Since he's acting as king, it's his job to engage the enemy and overthrow the enemy. But there he sits, a type of the carnal man, filled with paralysis and inactivity. 
in spite of everything that God has done through Saul, in spite of all that God taught Saul through Samuel, he's not a man of faith. As a matter of fact, when we see Saul act in the Bible, it's almost invariably because someone has already initiated something. And that's exactly the way the carnal man works. And Saul is a type of the carnal man. And if you're wondering what that word means, the carnal man, the carnal man or the carnal woman is the person who walks and acts and talks according to their own resources, their talent, their money, their abilities, their gifts, what they perceive to be their gifts. But the spiritual man, the spiritual woman, is the spiritual man and the spiritual woman who employs faith in God. And remember what I said to you, that if one of the definitions of faith is trusting in the resources of God rather than trusting in your own resources, then Saul is not a person who's going to trust in the resources of God. As a matter of fact, he's going to wind up doing everything wrong. And by the way, why didn't Jonathan tell his his dad? What do you suppose? What was the reason that he didn't tell his father? Some suggestions include that Saul may have vetoed the idea. Hey, look, now is not the time and this is not the place. If we're going to engage the enemy, we have to have a certain ability to determine that we are going to be able to win the war or defeat the enemy. Have you ever wanted to do something for God? Have you ever wanted to exercise faith? Have you ever looked at a circumstances or a circumstance in your own life and a voice whispered in your ear? Now is the time. Now's the time to throw off the oppression. Now's the time to break up that sinful relationship. Now is the time to end the rebellion and the disobedience. Now is the time to trust God. Now is the time to obey God. Now is the time to know Him and love Him. Now is the time for you to return to church. Now is the time for you to open up your Bible. Now is the time not to be strangled by the addiction or swallowed by the corruption. Now is the time to break free. Now's the time to get away from the life-dominating sin. And another voice whispers in your ear, It's not the time. Why, if you stop doing that, you could lose your job. If you stop doing that, your wife might leave you. If you stop doing that, your husband might leave. If you stop, how are you going? How are you going to survive? You become so deeply entrenched in a pattern of sin. that the other voice whispers in your ear, now is not the time. Well, If that's the case, then it could very well be that Jonathan is going to exercise the plan quite apart from his dad. Jonathan had no desire to seem divisive at a critical time. But here's the question. Is the plan sound? I know that in the audience we have a couple of military strategists. When you are engaging the enemy 
What is the best way to engage the enemy? What is the best way that is going to ensure victory? Well, you know what? You have to at least begin from this premise. You have to believe with all of your heart that God wants you free. If you begin with the premise that I'm in slavery, I'm in bondage, and I deserve to be in slavery, and I deserve to be in bondage, then you're going to always come to the wrong conclusion. But the moment that you believe God's plan and God's will and God's purpose for your life, the moment that you believe that God wants you free, that God wants you whole, that God wants you well, then you've got to be willing to face the enemy and confront the enemy and deal with the enemy. Here's the deal. I'm going to suggest to you that the plan is sound. And you want to know why I'm going to suggest to you that it's sound? What threat would a couple of Jews be to a whole garrison of Philistine guards? You see, as two Jewish people are approaching this entire gang, the gang is, I think, going to at first be off guard. Number one, it could be a couple of defectors. It could be a couple of people who are going, look, we're on the wrong side and we want to join the right side. So they might be able to get a lot closer than a whole army would be able to get. That might be part of it. But Jonathan wasn't about to let the Philistines strike first. And so he plots a commando type of raid. And look what it says in verse 3. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people didn't know that Jonathan had gone. Now remember, a couple of things. Number one. Saul is a rejected king. But not only is Saul a rejected king, but he's with a rejected priest. But clearly, Ahijah is still a priest. If Saul wants to get right with God, if, if Saul wants to hear from God, this is a perfect opportunity. But that's not happening. You'll remember that Ahijah is the great grandson of Eli the priest. You'll remember that Ichabod was born the same day that the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines and both sons of Eli died. And so part of the point of this particular passage is the fulfillment of what had taken place in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 27 and 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 11, where it talks about that the offspring of Eli would have short ministries and brief lives. And so there's the setting. And in verse 4, it says, Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there's a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other. And the name of one is Boses, And the name of the other is Sinna. I want you to visualize in your mind a pass. A narrow strait between a north-facing wall and a south-facing wall. This is a narrow, narrow path that both armies have to be able to pass through in order to occupy the land, in order to control the circumstances. 
Almost every bondage, almost every wickedness, almost every enslaving circumstance in our life, whether it's mental or emotional or physical, has strengths and it has weaknesses. There is a pattern of behavior that people preoccupy themselves with and they reinforce certain things in their life which make the bondage more and more difficult to break. Some of you are familiar with people who have drug and alcohol addictions. Some of you are familiar with people who have pornographic addictions. And you understand that they have to get up differently and they have to live their life differently. They have to make a break from these addictions. It isn't good enough that they just wake up one morning and they decide that they're going to quit. They have to have reinforcements. Help, if you will. And so in this particular narrow strait, this is the place where the garrison is positioned and Jonathan, the son of Saul, is having a situation where faith is beginning to well up inside of him because he believes the promises of God and he believes that God is going to use the children of Israel in order to effect freedom. And it says in verse 5, the front of one faced northward opposite Michmash and the other faced southward opposite Gibeah. So two armies, their positions are high. They're facing one another. They're separated by this rocky valley. Saul is on the outskirts of Gibeah with about 600 men. Saul is, has Ahitub, the, the priest from Shiloh, with him. And then in verse 6 it says, Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Read unbelievers. Read pagans. Read people who don't know, love, accept the Lord. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. He might have been thinking about what the psalmist said. That the Lord is my rock and my shield. He might have been thinking of Gideon. You'll remember the army of Gideon where they have to reduce the army little by little in order to come to a place where it's so obvious that it's God who saved them. And that's true. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. What's good about that, that scripture it isn't, that doesn't mean that you have to just have a few. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, you'll remember that Paul writes and he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What does God want from you and for you? When Paul writes that if God is for you, who can be against you? You know, I think that the whole context of Romans chapter 8 is that God has a plan and a purpose. It's for liberation. It's for freedom. It's forgiveness. It's for joy. And so then all of a sudden the faith begins to well up inside of Jonathan. Now, remember what it is. It's faith. Not in faith. But it's faith in God. If God... 
is for us. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. And listen to the armor bearer's response. So his armor bearer said to him, do all that's in your heart. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. Have you noticed that when you hang out with faithful people, it builds your faith? Have you noticed that when all of a sudden you're hanging out with somebody who says, let's trust God. Okay. Let's pray about this. Okay. Let's open up our Bible and see what kinds of resources are available to us. Okay. Let's call this for what it is, sin, and let's stop doing it. And let's now trust the Lord for what he has for us. And you go, okay. Imagine, have you ever had a conversation with someone? And you said, you know what? I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I don't want to be in rebellion and I don't want to be in bondage. And I don't want to do this anymore. I want to live a life that's different. And someone looks you right in the eye and says, let's do it. Let's trust the Lord. And look at verse 8. Then Jonathan says, very well, let's cross over to these men and we'll show ourselves to them. There's nothing secret. There's nothing stealthy going on here. This is a face-to-face confrontation with the enemy Jonathan is showing up with his armor bearer and saying, here we are. And look what it says in verse nine. If they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we'll stand still in our place and not go up to them. Here's what he's saying. If they say, hey, you wait right down there and we're going to come down there and slaughter you. And, you know, you would think that at this point, Jonathan would say to his armor, that's the sign that we're going to make a run for it. But he doesn't. He says, guess what? If that's what happens, we're going to stand still in our place. We'll know that this is the ground where we're going to fight. But make no mistake about it. And this is important that you get this. Jonathan has come to fight. Jonathan has come. To engage the enemy because the the alternative is unacceptable. Living in bondage, living in fear, living in slavery, living in subjugation, no more. And then look what it says in verse 9. If they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. Verse 10, but if they say thus... Come up to us. I'm your huckleberry. Well, then we'll go up. For the Lord has delivered them into our hand. And this will be the sign to us. Listen carefully to the sign. The guard's response becomes the guidance that Jonathan needs. Isn't that interesting? The guard's response becomes the guidance that Jonathan needs. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, what about now? Should I pray for a sign? 
If I want to go in a particular direction, should I go, Lord, if it's your will for me to continue that relationship, how did the sun come up tomorrow morning? That's really not a sign. It isn't a sign if it's going to happen anyway. You might even be a little more daring. Lord, if I come up to that light and the light is red, that'll be the sign that I need to stop. Of course, that's exactly what that means. You see, we as Christians don't have to rely on something so nebulous or so inconsistent as a sign. You see, we as Christians have something far more wonderful and far more valuable. We have the Word of God. We have the Bible. We have the promises of God. Not only do we have the Word of God, but you know what else we have? We have the Spirit of God who lives inside of us and desires to direct us. Now, are there going to be supernatural circumstances where it may be just a sign? Make no mistake about it. For the New Testament believer, a sign isn't for the person with strong faith. The sign is for the person with weak faith. Hey, guess what, Christian? You don't need anything other than the promise that God has given you to you in his word. God has given you the sign that you need to know him and to love him and to trust him. And as you pray through difficult circumstances, as you find the promises of God, then the word of God is going to direct you to the will of God. So. Should Jonathan wait for the Philistines to come over? Or should he meet them on their turf? That's the terms. There's going to be a fight. It's going to be here. Or it's going to be there. But this young man is going to exercise faith and throw off oppression. And look what it says in verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. They mocked Jonathan and they mocked the armor bearer. Comparing them to frightened animals who somehow have the courage to come up out of their hole. And this is exactly what Satan does for you. Ho, 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 Christian. You've crawled out of your little hole. Oh, Christian. Now you're going to live a life of victory, huh? Now you're going to live a life of obedience. Now you're going to live a life of submission. Ho, 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 ho. You've lived a life of bondage and enslavement and imprisonment. What do you think? What's going to be different about this time? And in verse 12, it says, Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we're going to show you something. Look at Jonathan's response. He said to his armor bearer, Come up after me. For the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. This is exactly the sign that we've been waiting for. This is the sign that we're going to engage the enemy and we're going to defeat the enemy. And look at verse 13. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with the armor bearer after him. And look what it says. And they fell before Jonathan. And he came after him. 
His armor bearer killed them. Here's the idea. Jonathan took out several of them. And then when Jonathan goes back through the narrow pass, the armor bearer cuts them down and said, come up to us and we'll show you something. And then in verse 14, it says that first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half an acre of land, a half an acre of land. This building that you're in right now is 44,000 square feet, which makes it an acre of land. Half of this building would be the parameters of half an acre. But again, the, the, the reason why the English translators used that amount was it was in the ancient world. It was the amount of land that it took a person, a regular person to plow with an ox, a piece of land in a, in a day. The amount of land that you could plow in a day. And so it's giving the geography and the topography that Saul and his, excuse me, Jonathan and his armor bearer, two Jewish soldiers against 20 Philistines in an area about half the size of this building, engage in a commando raid and then take them all out and kill them all. Now, let's be clear here as Christians. Are you called to kill your enemy? No. Remember Paul writes and he says, our battle, our fight, our war isn't against flesh and blood, but it's against powers, spiritual powers, invisible forces. There are circumstances all around us that try to hinder faith and hinder hope. And remember that part of that hindrance of hope is this. There's a voice whispering in your ear. You have no future. And guess what? If you have no future, you have no hope. What am I going to do? What am I going to do because of the financial circumstances? What am I going to do under the mountain of debt? What am I going to do about the job? What am I going to do about the circumstances that I find myself in? And the voices well up inside of you telling you that there is no future. And when you live in a world where there is no future, you live in a world where there is no hope. And so God comes. And he promises you. By faith, a future, and a hope. With faith comes hope. If you have no faith, you have no hope. Without faith, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's no significance in life. And all of you know this is true. Physical and financial circumstances might feed the material circumstances of your life. You can go to the all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet and you can get pretty full. You can tap into the resources and it will feed your body. You can make provisions to provide significance apart from God, but it's not going to work. People who have no faith in the true and the living God find significance in lesser things. They find significance in their loved ones. They find significance in celebrities. Well, you know, the most important thing in the world right now 
is that these people have died. These celebrities who have been with us on television and radio all these years. They're dead. Yeah, they're dead. When a celebrity dies, that should remind each and every one of us for it is appointed once for a human being to die and then comes the judgment. But they want to find significance in politics and they want to find significance in social causes and they want to find significance in science. There's got to be something that's significant. There's got to be something worth living for. There's really only one thing worth living for. It's your true king. The king who has died on a cross and risen from the dead. Remember what it says in Psalm 37, 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will bring it to pass. And look what it says in verse 15. And there was trembling in the camp and the field and among all the people, the garrison and the raiders trembled. And look, there was a supernatural physical earthquake that takes place. And so that it was a very great trembling. Not only does Jonathan and the armor bearer wipe out the garrison, but the moment that they wipe out the garrison, there's a physical trembling in the earth that takes place. And now all of a sudden there's this shift in consciousness. That the Philistine army begins to panic. Look what it says. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah, Benjamin, looked, and there was the multitude melting away, and they went here and there. Here's the picture. If you've ever been on top of Lookout Mountain, and you've been on the top of Lookout Mountain, and you can see over the front range, imagine you're on top of the mountain, and you're looking over the front range, and you see all of these people gathered in their circumstances, and then now like little ants, they begin to flee in all kinds of different directions. And you go, hey, the other army seems to be going in all kinds of different directions, and we don't know why. In verse 17, then Saul said to the people who were with him, now call the roll and see who's gone from us. And when they called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer weren't there. Okay, roll call. Can you imagine? Moishi, Abijah, Ahitub, Jonathan. Jonathan, the armor bearer isn't even given a name in the story. Armor bearer. And there's silence. And in verse 18, it says, and Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of the God of God was with the children of Israel. Now, again, ark and ephod in the original Hebrew language are very close and similar. And, and, and so. There's some dispute among scholars what is really meant here. But here's the most important thing. It isn't whether it's the ephod or whether it's the ark. The most important thing is that Saul says to Ahijah, we need supernatural direction from God in order to figure out how we're supposed to proceed. And it says in verse 19, now it happened while Saul talked to the priests that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Now, that's not good. And let me tell you why. Saul says, OK, we need to hear from God. And then he reverses his order and says, we don't really need to hear from God because clearly whatever's happening here is happening. And so we can just forget about God. 
That's always a bad idea. When you become wed to your circumstances and you allow your circumstances to dictate which direction that you're going to go, then you're going to find yourself in trouble. And then in verse 20, it says, Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor. And there was great confusion in verse 21. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Philistine. These are the Jews who had either been captured by the, the, the Philistines as slaves or captured as prisoners they begin to join in into the fight. And then in verse 22, it says, Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them into the battle. Do you understand what's happening? This little encounter between two Israeli commandos sacking a pivotal point causes an avalanche of faith to well up. And in verse 23 it says, So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle shifted to Bethavim. Now, clearly, the text is saying that the Lord saved Israel that day. How did the Lord save Israel that day? Because of the faith of one young man. One Bible writer wrote, What began as the adventure of a young man soon became the cause of the whole nation. And it was a victory for which God was given credit. What happens when one person decides to rely on the resources of God and says, I'm not going to live in bondage anymore. I'm not going to live in slavery anymore. I'm, 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 I want to be free. I want to live the life that God has intended me to live. I want to live in the freedom that's been accorded to me by the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happens. The moment that a Christian begins to say, no, I am going to believe God. No, I am going to trust God. No, I am going to open up my Bible. I am going to believe the promises of God. I am going to walk in obedience and submission to God. I am going to allow the resources of God to supernaturally direct me in an attitude of humility and obedience. This whole story could have been different, couldn't it? Have been? Can you imagine if it says, can you imagine if the story went like this? And Saul and his armor bearer went up and then they hacked them to pieces. The end. And you go, what? What has just happened here? This doesn't make a very good Bible lesson. They trust God and they get hacked to pieces. Do you remember the story of Daniel and the, the three children and the fiery furnace and their refusal to bow and they heat the furnace and the three children say, hey, look, 
one of two things is going to happen. We're going to die in this furnace. Or we're going to be delivered in this furnace. But make no mistake about it. We're not going to bow. We're going to obey God. And we're going to accept the consequences. You know what? When you walk by faith. When you endeavor to live a life of faith. Of confidence in the Lord. It's going to build trust. But make no mistake about it. The Bible says that without faith. It's impossible to please him. And that's why the Lord has called you to live a life of faith. And by that I mean trust in him and trust in his promises. But sometimes we think that only our resources will get us through. You know, there's a very famous story about Harry Houdini. He said that he could break out of any circumstance. That no matter how many shackles he had, no matter how many chains and, and, and shackles you put up in, no matter which jail you put him in, he said... I can get out of any circumstance that you place me in. And one day there was a, a sheriff in New York who took Harry Houdini up. It was an upstate New York. It was a smaller town. And he, he put handcuffs on Houdini. He placed him in a jail cell. He closed the door and he left. And it just took a matter of moments for him to get the handcuffs off. And he had a little wire that he had hidden in his belt. And he started picking the lock and picking the lock. And he worked on it for an hour and then two hours and three hours and five hours. And floods of sweat are coming over him because he's never experienced a lock like this before. No matter what he does and no matter how hard he tries, he can't get the door open. And in exhaustion, he leaned against the door and it swung open. Do you want to know why? Because it was never locked. He was trying to pick a lock that he thought was closed and it had been open all along. And sometimes that becomes a picture and a metaphor for your life. You're desperately striving to get to a place with the resources that you have in order to do what you think that you need to do. And all the while, God has opened the door for you in Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is walk through. That's what it means to live a life of faith. In a moment, we're going to have communion and I just want you all to hold the elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. But while we do that, I want you to when um, Isaac comes up and we you know we start singing some songs and stuff, what I want you to do is I want you to ask and answer this question. Which particular area of my life is the Lord calling me by faith to trust Him? Examine your heart and ask the Lord to reveal to you how you can, in confidence, 
begin to trust Him. So I'm going to pray for you. And then we're going to sing some songs. We're going to hand out the elements. And then we're going to all partake together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that there is a battle. Maybe for some, it's a battle of belief. It's the battle to even know you. Lord, we know that the Bible says that those who are servants of sin and are in bondage to sin, they're, they're slaves to sin. And for some people, sin has racked and ruined their life. And they no longer want to be slaves to sin. They want freedom and joy. They want forgiveness and hope. And Lord, for the Christian who has walked a path of equivocation, who has simply determined that it is their lot in life to be slaves to the Philistines, Lord, I pray that you would begin to reveal to them that that's not the way the New Testament is written. You are called to experience a life of freedom and hope and joy. And Lord, whatever that fear, whatever that addiction, whatever that giant mountain, Lord, I pray that you would put a perfect picture in each heart. And that, Lord, you would begin to speak to us about how to address that issue. How to build a path of hope. How to confront the enemy by faith and defeat the enemy by faith. And enlist others to participate by faith. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to hearts. That, Lord, you would make us men and women of faith, confident that, the, that your promises are true, that we can love you and trust you, and that when your word says something, we can believe it. Lord, we pray that you'd fill our hearts with love, that we would be motivated, not by a sense of duty or guilt or obligation, but we would want to respond to you in love. Remembering what it says in John 14, when Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Lord, keeping your commandments out of duty and obligation don't seem to be working. But Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with affection. That we would long to live lives of freedom in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, uh-huh. 
depths of peace When fears are still When strife exceeds My confidence My all in all Here in the love of Christ I see In Christ God in this gift of love in righteousness, scorned by the ones He came to Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was Okay.